Let's transition. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 40. If you do not have a Bible, um, I want to encourage you. There's a Bible in the chair in front of you. Uh, That's your gift today if you would like it. Uh, I think it's important for everyone to have a Bible. And uh, you're just turning to the first book of the Bible. The Bible is comprised of 66 books. So the first book of the Bible is Genesis, and you're looking for a large 40. I want us to consider the word greatness for a moment. How would you define greatness? What factors are involved that lead to a person's greatness? What are obstacles that tend to get in the way of greatness? You know, the longer that I live, the more I've become convinced that people are aspiring towards greatness. Because let's just be honest, who wants to sit there and say at the end of their life that my life was insignificant or that the impact that I had in the world was mediocre at best? I don't think anyone wants to say that. I think everybody wants to say that in some way or another, my life mattered. So the real question I have for you this morning is how would you define greatness? I think there's a lot of different ways that people define it. Some think of it in terms of talent and ability. Just the other night, I was talking with a group of guys and we couldn't help but Uh, remark upon the talent and abilities of Michael Phelps, right? In the world of swimming, in the world of the Olympics, he is an unparalleled kind of guy, isn't he? With what he's accomplished in securing gold medals. Some look at greatness in terms of accomplishments, Think of a guy like Steve Jobs in the empire that he's built with Apple. Do you know that just last summer uh, that Apple was the first company in human history that publicly traded at $1 trillion? Just to put that in perspective, that is 5% of the total United States gross domestic product, one company. It's amazing. Greatness has also been defined by historical accomplishments. We think of names like George Washington, Susan B. Anthony, Martin Luther King Jr., just to name a few. Others might think of it in terms of power. Some might think of it in terms of upward mobility. If I climb the ladder the fastest, I will be great. But as a biblical Christian... We must understand that the definition of greatness is not these, and that the pathway to greatness tends to have, well, humbler uh, origins than the colossal climb up the ladder or the acquisition of power. I love the way that Jesus defines it. He says it like this, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. I want to submit to you this morning that while people may be born with natural abilities, no one is born to be a biblical leader. They must be uh, developed into one. You might be born with a hunger for power, but you probably are not going to be born with the desire to empower others. No one has to teach a child to acquire but we do have to teach them how to share and dispense. 
We're born with the identity or the understanding that leadership is privilege, but we must undergo deep transformation to see the biblical perspective that leadership is not privilege, but sacrifice. And why would we sacrifice? Well, I would submit to you that it is for the glory of God and for the good of others. This morning, as we take a look at a man on the pathway to greatness, we're going to see how God entered him into a process to hone the man. I believe that God has great things designed for everyone in this room, uh, particularly as we follow Jesus. But the thing is, is that we cannot aspire to that greatness. We cannot step into those great shoes unless we submit ourselves to the process that God has for us, that he's laid out for us. And we're going to see that Joseph does this. Now let's just recall his story a little bit. Bitter betrayal. He is taken and he loses his freedom. He goes down to Egypt. His reputation is slung through the mud as a false accusation is made against him. And we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 40 with Joseph sitting in the pit of a prison. And it's there that we see that God starts teaching him these lessons. Now as I tell you these lessons, I want to make it applicable to you because I think these lessons apply to us. So the first lesson that we see is that God is teaching us to give every situation our best. This might sound familiar to what we covered last week. Look at verses one through four. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and chief baker, And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in his custody. We noted last week in this story that when you're faced with an injustice, there's several options that you can take, several pathways that you can pursue you can choose the pathway of getting even, right? Like the Count of Monte Cristo. Or you can choose the pathway of giving up. You curl in a ball somewhere. You hope to die. But we noted that there's a better pathway, and that is trusting God with the situation, his plans, and Joseph chose the latter option. Genesis 39, 21, look at that on the screen there. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And then verse 22 goes on, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Now, don't gloss over this too quickly as you think about how the Lord gives favor to Joseph. We might not be connecting the dots here, but the message is this. He gives the favor through or via Joseph's hard work, his positive attitude, his confidence, even in every circumstance, even when it's bad that he's not stuck. 
One thing that we are learning as we unpack this story together is that no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, you can pursue godly excellence. And as you do that, you can see the way that God works. Notice that Joseph never says, well, this isn't the place I was supposed to be. This isn't the job that I was supposed to be working. This isn't the ideal circumstance that I had envisioned for my life, and so I'm going to give it my 10%. No. He gives it his all, and it's a powerful reminder that God tends to provide us favor in the eyes of the world through our work, through our ethic. Martin Luther King Jr. said these powerful words as he was considering the different vocations and making your life count. He said, whatever your life's work is, do it well. A man should do his job so well that the living, the dead, and the unborn could do it no better. If it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, Sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Can you say that about the way that you pursue your work? Once again, we were looking at 2 Thessalonians earlier in the year. Now we're looking in Genesis. God places a supreme value on work and how I go about it. Notice, though, that he doesn't show partiality for the type of work. He doesn't give partiality to the CEO over the hairstylist. No. He takes supreme delight in the heart attitude of the worker, no matter where they are working. So Joseph's new assignment is to provide for a cupbearer and a chief baker in the prison under Pharaoh. Now both roles, if, if you're unfamiliar with this setting, were actually pretty big deals back in this day. Um, both of these guys had special access and special responsibility over something that Pharaoh had to contend with every day. He had to eat. And if you think about it, uh, a a very simple way to run a coup d'etat in a kingly setting like this would be to what? Poison the king. It's through his food. And so that cupbearer and that chief baker had this big responsibility. And in fact, both of these guys would become pretty close in association with the king. In fact, people looked at these guys as people of influence. I find that very significant in this story. It's not in Potiphar's home. It's not just walking the streets freely in Egypt. No, it's in this deep, dark prison that God is able to set up these network connections, right? Network connections that Joseph wouldn't have had opportunity to secure otherwise had he not been in prison. I mean, are you just going to walk into Pharaoh's palace and go up to the chief cupbearer and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you a little bit. I've got this big dream and I want to see it happen. He wouldn't give you the time of day. But here in the prison, God works it out. Which 
It's amazing when you think about it because Joseph gets this platform because he sees these people and he starts caring for them personally. And I think that's another lesson that we learn in God's process for us. He is teaching us to care for the people that he has placed in our life. Look at what he does in verses five through seven. The text continues, and one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? I was driving with one of the members of the church this past week, and we were talking on all manner of subject, but he said this statement that's really stuck with me, and I think it's going to stick with me for a long time. He said, Rob, I've come to this realization. Life is all about relationships. It's all about our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with our friends and our family and, and our church members, our relationship to the world. I think Joseph is growing in this text as we're watching him from Genesis 37 to Genesis 40. He's becoming a big-hearted man. Look what it says in verse six. When Joseph came to the officials in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Now, what skill is that? We call it empathy. The skill of empathy is the ability for a person to look at the distress or the situation of another person that they're not so preoccupied with what's going on in their world that they just walk by the person, but no, they stop and they put themselves in that person's shoes and they send compassion towards that person. Let's rewind the tape a little bit. Was Joseph always so others-centered? I personally believe that he was not. I think that, in fact, for a big portion of his youth, he couldn't see beyond the four-foot circumference that his body occupied. I believe that he wore daddy's coat of favoritism with pride. I think that as he was sharing his dream, he was rubbing it in the face of his brothers that he would be superior to them. I think that Joseph was the biggest fan in his own fan club. But not anymore. Life, circumstances, pain, these have all been used by God to develop his skill in recognizing and seeing the pain of others. Friends, what makes a great leader? I would submit to you that it is not her strategic agility. I think it's important that we can think and clearly outline plans and all of those kind of things. That's important stuff. I would say that it's not a person's charisma because we've seen highly influential, charismatic people who have raised to great platforms and they've used that platform to manipulate people. So what makes a great leader? In God's economy, a great leader is a person with a big heart, a person who genuinely loves and cares for the people in their sphere of influence. A leader is the type of person who stands in the grocery store 
And as that person's checking them out, they don't see an object or an obstacle to their schedule. They see a living, breathing human being who has hopes and dreams and fears and aspirations. I think that this is what made Charles Spurgeon such a a great man in his own day. Yes, he was a gifted preacher. He could preach better than any of his contemporaries, but one of the things that you learn about Charles Spurgeon is that he was a big-hearted man. One instance of this happened in the year of October 19th, 1856. His influence was growing immensely as his name and reputation were going out. He could pack huge halls for people to come listen to him preach. So a plan was concocted. They would rent out the Surrey Music Hall and they would fill that place so that Spurgeon could preach to as many people as possible. The night that Spurgeon was preaching in the hall, uh, the capacity was filled. Every seat in the room, people standing in the aisles, any crack or crevice inside the building where someone could occupy the space, there was a person there. And in addition to that, 10,000 people were standing outside of the building just so that they could catch an, an earful of the Prince of Preachers. As he began preaching, Someone in the back yelled, fire, the gallery's on fire, the building's about to fall down. You know what can happen in moments like this? Herd mentality takes over. People in a frantic, frenetic way start pushing and kicking and stepping, and when the dust had cleared, when the dust had settled, seven people had lost their lives Many more were injured. Those who were closest to Spurgeon, who spent time with the man, they said that he never recovered from this event. In the days that would follow, he spent hours in tears by day and dreams of terror by night. And even moving onward from that, as he thought about those seven people, those seven humans that had lost their life, It sent the man into a depression that he would live with for most of his life. For big-hearted people, the event or the platform or the task is not about their fame, their glory, or even the invisible mission. It's about people. They are not using people as a means to an end. They are doing what they are doing because they see that people were made in the image of God. So that member was right. It really is all about relationships. Remember, as you're rubbing shoulders with people to stay in tune, because you don't know what they're dealing with. You don't know what's going to happen in the world. I reminded of something that happened in my life about six months ago. I may have shared a little bit of this story with you, but I don't think I finished it. Um, One of the local stores, there's a guy, uh, I'll just name him Jeff uh, to keep his anonymity. But um, we had had interactions uh, over the course of probably two years if I, as I would frequent the store. And Jeff was a great guy. He was the type of guy who would look you in the eyes, say a kind word to you, and then you would go on, have your day, and you felt great, right? 
Well, one time I walked into the store and quite out of character, Jeff pulled me aside privately and he wanted to have a conversation with me and he began and he was like, hey, um, you're a pastor, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I, I am a pastor. I'm the pastor of Osterville Baptist Church on Main Street in Osterville. And then he went into his own personal situation and he started saying, you know, I just, I'm really sensing that I need to get back into church. I need to have God in my life in some way. And then he launched into a couple of big questions, which when someone's on their little five-minute break or whatever, I'm not going to be able to answer all of this right now. So I reached into my wallet, I handed Jeff my card, and I said, look, I'll talk to you anytime. This is one of my favorite things in the world to do. Let's grab a coffee together and, and we'll talk about the things of God. Well, two weeks go by and I haven't heard anything from him. So I decided that I'm gonna just pop into the store and see if I can catch him and find out what's going on. I walk into the store and there's a girl behind the cash register and I go up to her and I say, hey, where's Jeff? Is he off today? And she's like, haven't you heard? I'm like, no, I haven't heard what? He's been in the ICU for the better part of a week and a half. Well, I start freaking out and I say to her, oh my goodness, well, um, please keep me informed of what's going on with him. I gave her my cell phone number. She would text me and give me updates on his progress. He had developed some kind of organ failure and uh, his body was rapidly giving way. I told her too, I will I'll get together with his family if you, if you need a pastor around uh, just for prayer or for comfort or anything like that. And for two weeks, Jeff fought. But at the end of two weeks, he eventually passed away. And that was a big reminder to me. A big reminder. Let me restate it. Life is about relationships. We've got to focus on the relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with friends and family and church members, our relationships with the world. Uh, are you taking time to get involved in people's lives. And I'm not just talking about at a surface level. Let me ask you the question, do you know them well enough, better than what their favorite baseball team or what their hobby is? Do you know them well enough to know what their pain is, where their time of need is, what their hopes are, their dreams and their fears? If we want to be used greatly by God in the lives of people, it's not just enough to have a gospel message tucked in the back pocket. They have to know that I know them that I love them, that I care, I have to be big hearted. And it's amazing in this story because Joseph is like this, he's growing into this type of guy and it's because of that that God gives him this platform to exercise faith and I think that's the third lesson that Joseph had this morning and that we have. He provides us with faith opportunities. Look there at verse eight. They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them and Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. You see, by placing these two officials in this cell with Joseph and giving them a dream, 
God's giving him a faith opportunity. Do you know that God's always asking the question of you and of me? How's your faith? How's your faith? A more cynical person that was sitting in that prison would have said, oh, you don't need to worry about no interpretations. Don't invest in dreams. I had a dream some time ago in my youth, and look where I am today. I'm sitting here rotting away in a prison. You need to just give up on this whole dreams thing. But Joseph doesn't do that. Instead, he clings to faith in God. He says, do not interpretations belong to God. His response is extraordinary for two reasons. Implicitly, Joseph is holding on to the dream that God gave him so many years ago. He still believes that God can work in his circumstances, in his situation. He is the God of dreams and interpretations belong to him. Explicitly, he's also making a bold statement about the superiority of his God to the gods, the pantheon of Egyptian gods. I mean, these Egyptians, they took their dreams very seriously, so much so that when you had a dream, you needed to go and visit uh, an interpreter of dreams, someone who had the gift of divination and the skill of interpreting the dreams. So Joseph, in saying this to them, is essentially saying, he's essentially denying the magical, mystical powers of the Egyptian magicians. He is saying that all true revelation comes from God, not from them. Isn't that downright bold? Here he is, a slave, rotting away in a prison. He is the lowliest of the lowly, and he's saying, my God is bigger than your God. Indeed, your gods aren't anything because they don't exist. He stands out of a, as a man of faith because even in this situation, he can see the hand of God everywhere, working. Church, do you worship a big God? Do you worship a God who is big enough to handle all of your circumstances? Or do you lose confidence in God? Do you believe that he's constrained in some way or that he is less powerful than the forces that are operating around you or that he is cold and distant and uncaring towards your situation in some way? Friends, I've got to tell you, if that's the God that you're subscribing to right now, you are worshiping a small God, a minuscule God, not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, all-capable. And Joseph chose not to uh, run away from this God. He chose to cling to this God in his time of need, and that's what sustained him in prison. And then he gets used by God to interpret these dreams. In verses 9 through 13, he begins by interpreting the first dream of the cupbearer. Now this dream, as you read it, you're like, okay, that's pretty hopeful. Uh, the idea behind it is that in three days' time, the cupbearer would have his head lifted, so 
You can just imagine when someone's head's lifted, the idea is that their reputation has been restored, that they're in good standing. If their head's bent down, right, then they're in a state of shame or disgrace. Well, look, Chief Baker hears the interpretation of the cupbearer, and he's like raising his hand, oh, me next, me next, interpret my dream. Now, when you read his dream, it sounds a lot more ominous, doesn't it? He's carrying uh, baskets of baked goods to Pharaoh, and birds from the air are coming and swooping down upon the baskets and cleaning out all of the food before he can deliver it to Pharaoh. Old Testament commentator Bruce Walke suggests this. Though the chief baker had all kinds of delicacies on his head, he amazingly does nothing to protect them. Does his unclean conscience render him immobile? Does it symbolize his failure to protect Pharaoh's table? Did you notice that commonality between these two men? Both of them had something to do with Pharaoh's what? Food. It appears that there's a deeper plot behind the jail, and could it be that Pharaoh suspected that one of them was hurting his table? And is Joseph so forthright with this chief baker because he knows that the man was part of a plot to kill Pharaoh. Look at verse 18. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, what? From you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. This would be a demise that is shameful. If there's children in the room, plug your ears for just a second. He will be beheaded, his body will be impaled, and the flesh will be torn off of him by birds. This was seen as the most reprehensible, demeaning way to die in Egypt at this time. John Courage shares this. He says, they believed that the preservation of flesh was important for a person to obtain to the afterlife. This is why they placed so much emphasis on embalming and other procedures of preservation. So here you have it, two dreams, two different outcomes, And it's all telling us something about God, that God is sovereign. He's in control of all seasons and circumstances. He doesn't just know what's going to happen right now. He knows what's going to happen five minutes from now, three days from now, 10,000 years from now. He's designed it that way. But did you notice something else as you consider that? While Joseph is given the revelation to interpret the dreams of these two men, he does not know how his own situation is going to unfold. Did you see that? Look at verses 14 and 15. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. So get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. Is he starting to sound a little more human to you now? Doesn't he kind of come across otherworldly 
through this story. I mean, he doesn't complain. He doesn't fight for his rights. He almost seems to be impervious to the strain of the situation. But now we see the, the veil rolled back a little bit at the man and the strain upon him. I wasn't supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be in this prison. I was betrayed. I, I was shipped down here. And even, even the cause that has me here isn't just. He must have felt so much hope to finally be speaking to someone, standing in the room with someone that would have influence, to have a voice with Pharaoh who could, could tell his story and maybe get him out of the prison. Some people, as they read this story, they suggest that in asking for this, Joseph is in some way lacking faith. But I don't see that in the story. I don't see that at all. I mean, the more I see Joseph grow, the more I see that he has immense faith. Why are those two things in opposition to one another? I mean, I've got to tell you, if I was in prison, right, and Dean Smith, who goes down to the prisons regularly to share Jesus with guys, if he came down to the prison to visit me, and they were going to let him out after that, I would do two things at the same time. First, I would look up to God and I would say, your will be done, and then I'd look across the table at Dean and I'd say, find the best lawyer you could possibly find and get me out of this place. It's not a lack of faith. Of course, Joseph had faith. He trusted God. He just wants to serve God outside of the prison. Can you blame the guy? Well, as the story moves on, we see that all of Joseph's prophecies come true. Verse 20 and 22, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hands, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Every last detail down to the detail. One elevated, the other executed. One restored, the other resigned to a miserable end. But what about Joseph? Verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now just go forward in the story, one verse, chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Friends, as you read the story of Joseph, don't let your mind jump to the resolution of the story. If you're familiar with this story, if you've had it in Sunday school class or if you've read it in the Bible, too easily, too quickly can we jump to the nice bow that's on top of the package. We say to ourselves, Genesis chapter 50 says that God, or you intended these things for evil, but God intended them for good. For just a moment, look at what Moses is doing here. He gives us a chronology about how much time he was in the prison. Let the story play out a little bit in your mind. Can you just imagine that first sunrise in the morning when you're staring at the door, waiting to hear the sound of the key entering into the keyhole for your freedom? And that by that evening when the sun starts going down, you reassure yourself and you say, it's okay, his first day out is going to be a busy day. He'll be back for me at some point. 
Only after a month would the bitter reality settle in. He's forgotten me. I'm going to rot away in this prison for as long as I live. Two years, friends. Two years. Do you think that he had cable television in there? Do you think that the sanitary conditions were up to code? Do you think that any of them cared about the nutritional intake of an adult man at this time? In Psalm 105, verses 18 to 19, we get a little glimpse of the bitter condition. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a uh, collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. Friends, I think that Moses is giving us this chronology detail to help us understand to help us see Joseph's disappointment. Can you imagine the letdown? The why God questions that would come to mind. Why would God do this? And I believe that we're told these details because Moses wants us to understand that God still needed two years with the man. He needed two more years to prepare the man for greatness. As you think about your own disappointments, recognize this principle that often God is bringing you through disappointment because he is preparing you for greatness in some way. But remember the biblical definition of greatness. It's, uh, it might not necessarily be God's greatness for you, might not necessarily be that promotion that you're dreaming about or that, that new house that you want or that, that big getaway that you have in mind. It might be something totally different than that. I think of Hudson Taylor, who knew the disappointment of delay. After six years of intensive service in China, he would return home with an infirmity that would keep him occupied for five years of his life. And over the course of those five years, he would fall into obscurity. Friends forgot about him interest in his name faded. He lived in the coal black streets of East London, which was an impoverished part of London during this time. And in those five years, he would reflect back and write these words about them. Yet, without those hidden years, with all their growth and testing, how could the vision and enthusiasm of youth have been matured for the leadership that was to come? And God would take him out of that and give him a platform in China where he would be greatly used to found the China Inland Mission and reach many Chinese for Christ. Friends, there tends to be many disappointments on the pathway to greatness. Our lives are filled with disappointment. Some of the disappointments are given to us. Others' disappointments are disappointments that enter into our world because of our own making. Just consider the disappointments that come up throughout life. The disappointment of a marriage crumbling. 
The disappointment of losing a dating relationship that you had staked your hopes into. The disappointment of loss of physical mobility or physical capability such as hearing. The disappointment of a wayward child. The disappointment of losing a spouse who you believed that you were gonna grow old with. The disappointment of the loss of your future. You had envisioned something different from your life, but now you sit here today and your life looks nothing like what you had envisioned it would be. The disappointment of financial ruin. The disappointment of lost opportunity. But here's the deal. Whatever your disappointment is, it does not have to define who you are or who you will become. In fact, as you allow God to invade your world, you can give him the opportunity, the privilege of defining who you are and who you will become. And his dreams for your life were much, much better than your dreams for your life. That is the big reality in Joseph's life and in our life. Let's read Psalm 105 again. I'm gonna read it from the New Living. I'm gonna finish out a part that I left. They bruised his feet with fetters and placed his neck in an iron collar until the time came to fulfill his dreams. The Lord what? Tested Tested Joseph's character. In two years, he would catapult to the top. He would wake up every morning and hear the rhythmic chants as the Egyptian priests were waking up the gods. Do you think that he wasn't going to be pushed towards that bent? Up to this point, he had faced one Potiphar's wife, but there will be many Potiphar's wives. And remember, Joseph is a hot dude. The chief baker's intrigues were one of many plots to take control of power. There would be lying and backbiting, and Joseph would be the only follower of God in all of Egypt. God knew that the man needed preparation for this great responsibility. And as I think about that, I I say to myself, I don't know what God is preparing for you. But I imagine there is some form of greatness if you would step into the pathway that he's creating for you. It could be that you start following Christ and you change the trajectory of your family's history. Your kids are raised up in the fear and admonition of the Lord and and their past or their future is not gonna be like your past was. It could be that God is preparing one of you or several of you to serve in the foreign mission field. Maybe he is raising someone up in this church to get involved in the political process. And I've got to tell you, I think that Christians should be engaged in the political process. We should leverage our influence. Maybe it will involve using your time as a coach, your influence as a teacher to instill godly values into children. It might be an opportunity to use your retirement well. Now, I'm not allowed to talk about golf anymore. Tim Turberville told me if I say anything else about golf, he's no longer tithing to the church. So we're gonna talk about fishing instead, which I said, that's too close to home for me. But retirement is not all about fishing. There's more to it. God has shaped your life. He's shaped your 
uh, skills and influence in such a way that you could take those skills in your retirement years and, and leverage them for the glory of God in the church or in the community. Whatever it is, realize that God is bringing you through a process or will bring you through the process or has brought you through the process of preparation for this reason. Joseph had to learn from God uh, through humility so that he would not squander a great opportunity that God would give him. And it is only after Joseph has gone through the process It's only after you and I have gone through the process that the same will be true for us. So here it is. May we all learn from God's process so that we can be used greatly by him for the sake of his glory. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?